four straight losses, five games under 500, a disastrous trio of games in the Bronx, and oh yeah, the Mets traded for a Frazier, the old one though, not the redheaded one. We break down the miserable losses against the Yankees, a DeGrom loss to the Marlins, and the Mets making three deadline deals, all of them which don't make any sense. We also chat with former Mets manager that led them to the 2000 World Series. It's the great Bobby Valentine. All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks. It's out of here. We got you. Welcome to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. That's my co-host and former Mets pitcher, Nelson Figueroa. I'm Jake Brown. Subscribe to Amazing But True on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FiggyNY and at Jake Brown Radio. Bobby Valentine, the former Mets manager, will join us later in the show, but Figgy... Oh, boy. <sighs> It might be time for another rant. Oh, it boy. It just might be. It's August 31st, 2020. The New York Mets have officially, in this season, hit rock bottom. They are now 15-20, and 20, five games under 500. they They've lost four straight games. They lost three straight to the Yankees after winning the first two. And even Jacob deGrom, for a fourth straight time against the Marlins, by the way, couldn't save them today at City Field in that makeup game for last Thursday against the Marlins, who, by the way, in 2020, have become buyers in this year of unpredictabilities, in this year of madness. The Miami Marlins would be in the playoffs of the season ended today. They are buyers today. And the Mets would be on the outside looking in of an expanded playoffs. And you saw why over this weekend and on Monday, why that is the case. On Saturday, Dellen Batantis became Rick Ankeel. He had the yips. He threw one in a Staten Island to lose the game. You live with the Mets losing that baseball game. That wasn't the big deal. But then comes Sunday, Figgy. Sunday was the big deal. And to set this whole weekend up, it was glory. It was Friday. I was out having a good time. The Mets went on a walk-off after they came back in game one with three homers to win. The second game, Ahmed Rosario hits a walk-off at Yankee Stadium as the home team in the road park. I'm out with my roommate. His girlfriend friends were euphoria. We even get Taco Bell after. They didn't have cinnamon twist on the menu, but I settled for cinnamon delights. And life is good. Steve Cohen is the new Mets owner. The transformation of the franchise is about to happen. Friday was truly a memorable day in Mets history. Go down as one of the great days in history if Steve Cohen is indeed approved, and we'll get into that later on. And then the, the transformation happens. And Sunday's where you scratch your head. You scratch the hair on your head. I scratch the shea butter on my head. When in the first game, everything's going great. Life's a happy song. With Luis Rojas and Edwin Diaz to sing along if you're a Muppets fan. And Edwin Diaz does what he does best. And to set up that game, Figgy, Jared Hughes, he's doing just fine. The first guy gets on by an error. That's a Mets error and the Mets defense, which you'll get into as well, has led to their transgressions. Then they get one out. Then they get two outs. Then a walk. 
then a hit by pitch, and then Ish hits the fan, if you want the clean version. Luke Voigt hits a seeing-eye single, a shifty-eye single, right through second base, which would have been a routine grounder. Then comes the second mishap of the inning. The throw to third, the tag is made, but then the ball magically goes away on the tag. It's 7-4. Then mayhem. Edwin Diaz comes in the game, and this is where I lost my mind. Why is Edwin Diaz in the game with runners on base? Why does Luis Rojas keep doing this to Mets fans, to the team, to the franchise, to anybody involved? Stop putting him in with runners on base. Let Hughes finish that inning. Have faith in relievers outside of the reliever that blows it every freaking time. He's 28 for 38 with a 5.80 ERA. How many times do you have to give this bum the chance to close a game and him to fail? He throws a wild pitch. Aaron Hicks hits one to the moon. The game is tied. And then the Mets lose in the eighth inning on deja vu. Wilson Ramos failing to make a tag on a good throw from Michael Conforto. Stop me if you've seen that before. And then Sunday, part two of the doubleheader. They lose again in extra innings in a seven-inning game. Same old song. Drew Smith comes in, gives up a grand slam. Gary Sanchez hits one to the moon, and the Mets lose. Then Jacob deGrom comes in. And listen, Pete Alonso made an error. He's human. He, I know he's not having a good year. I know a lot of people want to knock him. He made a bad defensive play. But just the tail of the tape as fourth time Jacob deGrom faces, again with the mismanaging, again with Luis Rojas' ineptitude, putting a guy out there versus the same team four times. The third time wasn't the charm, the fourth time was. That could have been avoided by him pitching Tuesday and Sunday against the Yankees and against the Marlins. Instead, oh, let's have him face the Marlins again. And you know what? He only gave up one earned run, but he struggled after that error, and the Mets lose the game 5-3. And to add insult to injury as we wrap it up on this, the Mets made three deadline deals, and none of them made the team any much better they went out and brought Todd Frazier back for God knows why to add a boost in 25 games he's hitting 241 this season they went out and got Robinson Chirinos who is Aaron Altair Jr. he's hitting 119 and has a six and a half million dollar club option next year is he supposed to be the start of the backup who knows so they went out and got Chirinos for a player to be named later but then the one that really makes you scratch your head they trade their 12th ranked prospect who was the Pitcher of the year in the minor league system last year for Miguel Castro, a reliever with a over four career ERA who has done nothing this year, a four ERA with the Orioles. They gave away another starting pitcher in the farm system for absolutely nothing. And Brody Van Wagenen makes you think, huh, what? And we go into this series against the Orioles who the Mets just gave away one of their top pitching prospects to, five games under, over two and out of the playoffs, outside looking in, and making you think, where is this team right now? My turn? Yes. <laughs> this team is two and a half games out of the last playoff spot. If they were to finish 500, which is certainly feasible, they have a chance to be in. I'll start backwards with the moves. The moves, the only thing that I think the moves did was you got a clubhouse leader, someone who can be vocal and has been vocal uh, in a Met uniform, and that's Todd Frazier. What his glove or bat does for the team, I, I don't see it really playing a huge part. Chirinos, he's a body. You know, Nito should be coming back soon. I don't see Chirinos seeing any of that 6.5 million. I know 
they got cash back as well. So that buyout will be done and they'll get rid of him for probably around 500,000 next year. Um, the Miguel Castro piece, good arm plus arm. You're looking at 98, good slider, good changeup. Again, at this point, if you're not willing to put relievers in with a five run lead like a drew smith then you don't need to have them in the big leagues i tweeted this out earlier then you go get guys who are in the big leagues and if they have a four that's better than the 14 that most of these met pitchers have had that have come up and come from the taxi squad it's been hard to stomach what's been going on because one of the positives in this week and you know me i love positives seth lugo as a starter has been outstanding but that what have we learned from watching jacob Degrom for two and a half years now that doesn't matter because Somehow the bullpen will blow it. Somehow the defense will blow it. Somehow something won't add up. They won't score enough runs, no matter what it is. And it takes me back to the days of Jabba Chamberlain, where he was the best eighth inning guy in all of baseball. And the Yankees said, yeah, could you imagine if he, he could do that? Let's extrapolate it to seven innings of starting, how great that could be. And it's not that easy. But Seth Lugo has made it look that easy in the transition. I love what I see out of him as a starter, but I know for a fact there were three games that would have been much, much different knowing that I had Seth Lugo available to pitch one inning in one of the doubleheader games and two innings in the other doubleheader game to close it out. That's the problem with not having the puzzle pieces that you thought you had in the beginning. The Mets do not have a starting rotation. They don't. Mats came back for one inning and is on the shelf. You lost that arm. Gaselman has to be put in the bullpen if you're going to have Lugo in the starting rotation. And whether it's it's an, getting another starter, which I thought they should have done. And even if it's a low-level starter, someone who has major league experience, someone who can go out there and give you more than two innings, because that's all that Gaselman's doing. Gaselman has plus stuff and has pitched in the bullpen and has had success. You need that arm back there to help those guys. Hughes had pitched three days in a row. And again, it wasn't his fault. Everything that was going on in that inning wasn't his fault. Poor play, a circus act in that inning, and you implode for five, five runs after two two outs. But then we get to that game and they start out with the runner on second base is Conforto and Ahmed Rosario is leading off the inning with Dom Smith behind him. And he doesn't bunt over Michael Conforto, sacrifice himself, put the ball in play just to get Conforto over to third base so that Dom Smith, who has been nothing but extra base hits of doubles and home runs and being able to lift the ball, situational hitting, coming through in the clutch, he has done it all year long, you don't give him an opportunity to do the easy job. You made it even harder for him to try and come up in the clutch because you strike out looking, Dom strikes out looking, and now you see the Mets back against the wall and the momentum was already gone going into that inning. You had a chance to kind of at least just some hope. Diaz was going to have to go out there for another inning and we saw what happened in that one. It's it's a shame. It's a shame because you want to pin it on Rojas for mismanaging. You want to pin it. There's so many places you want to pin it. It comes down to playing fundamental defense. I'm not asking for highlight plays. I'm not asking for Oh my God, Manny Machado at third base back in those days or a Arenado at third base. I'm asking for routine plays to look routine. I'm asking for double plays to be turned. I'm asking for the little things to get out and keep the game moving along. And that's not happening. It's been the defense that's been the biggest killer. The Mets ERA over the four losses right now, as a combined team, it's only been like a 3-6. A 3-6. So they've been pitching well enough. It, there's been moments because it's unearned runs where a, you know you got a grand slam with three other runs counted, fourth one didn't count. You had against DeGrom today, he had three unearned run, runs again because of defense. That's got to be tightened up. That has to be. And it's tough to do when you're playing so many games in a row, nine games in six days, no off days, no time to 
you do the pregame stuff that you warm up every day. I think a lot of people hopefully know that you don't just show up to play at seven o'clock. Every day they're practicing. Every day they take BP and ground balls and everything else. But it, you don't do the little things like the covering bases and the who's got pop-up priority and things like that that you normally might be able to do when you have some more time and you're only playing one game that day. Sloppy. Sloppy play all the way around. It's been upsetting. And having said all that, they're still in the hunt. I don't know if Brody did enough. I know Brody didn't do enough. I know. Because you need arms. You need viable arms, and everybody's dropping like flies. We see a guy have a bad inning, IL. Got Batances, got Mats. Uh, Hughes had you know come from the IL or, or in the beginning, and he's one of those everyday guys that pitches now because you have confidence in him being out there. That inning got out of control. Diaz is still throwing the ball 100 miles an hour all over the place, but at least he's not on the shelf. You need to have reliable arms and those moves needed to be made, whether it was adding a couple of starters, and I'm not looking for front end because I don't want to trade away a lot of prospect, but some back end starters. We're looking at the Marlins who have been doing what they've been doing and staying afloat in the National League East with kids from A-ball last year and having them just, hey, here's a chance, make the most of it. We've seen the Mets against the Yankees, those last two starters that they faced, King and then you, you face Garcia. These are minor league kids who shouldn't be in the big leagues yet. And yet they've come up and they have success the Mets don't have that luxury. There's no one to go down and, 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 and look at. They've traded away a ton, three now, of their top five starters in the organization. And there's no one, there's no, there's no help on the horizon in that front. So I don't know what exactly was the thought process going into this trade deadline, because it's kind of like, are you going for it or you're not? San Diego Padres are all in. And when I say all in, they got nine players and traded away 15. That's a culture shift of, hey, we're not just in it. We're trying to win it right now. Prellas tried this before and it didn't work a few years ago, but they reloaded very quickly and they're back in the hunt, albeit it's a 60 game season, but I don't care. I don't care if there's an asterisk next to a World Series ring. You're going for it. Brody had to make some moves, as I've said a million times. He's made moves that made you question him with the when it comes to prospects. And I say, he can't make moves on a three-year deal with a five-year plan. He's going with the opposite. He knows he has to win and win now. Ownership is changing. They're going to reassess everything. And they're going to look into what has been done to make this team better today than it was yesterday. And I don't think he did that today. Why can't we have nice things, Figgy? That's all I ask. Why can't we have nice things? It, it never seems like, and when you look at the window of opportunity, right? We talked about the five aces. We talked about the young hitters that were coming up. We talked about, you know, Peter Alonzo crashing onto the scene, McNeil crashing onto the scene, all these wonderful things that were happening. And now we're sitting here and, and, and it's slowly falling apart because where this team was built on pitching, it doesn't have the pitching that it needs. The offense is providing enough offense to win ball games. The defense has always been suspect. And we thought we saw some good things with Jimenez who made two errors on that in that same inning. And he had, that was his first error of his career, which is crazy to think about. And he's played several different positions. It looks to me as though they hit a wall. And maybe Friday was too high of highs where you think, okay, we're good. We got it now. And that's where you can't let up. You can't let up against the Yankees JV team. I'm sorry. They didn't face the Yankees lineup. That was the Yankees JV team. And they couldn't put them away with two outs and up five runs. Friday, I hit a, I hit a wall. I hit a, I hit a brick wall because I was running through it with all the energy I had. I was screaming, <laughs> let's go Mets in the streets. Now after this show, you'll see me outside with a bag over my head. So, I mean, a tale of two worlds this weekend in 24 hours, and it was euphoria. I mean, Steve Cohen alone, just on top of a walk-off. Like, 
like walking it off in Yankee Stadium alone is awesome. I mean, the last time you had a walk up opposing team, I, I think it was like 1922. It was like the Christy Mathewson days. It was like William Taft was like the president. Uh, <laughs> and now this happens and you're feeling on top of the world. Now if I scream, let's go Mets in the streets, I'll have a garbage can thrown at me by a local <laughs> pedestrian. So it's it's scary how quick it turned, but it's it's tail the Mets. And we're writing, you know, Steve Cohen's not official yet. You still got to get 23 owners to sign off on it. So it looks like it's going to happen. But with the Mets, you just never know with this team. So let's not lock in Steve Cohen until the pen's on the paper and the the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, this is a a gentleman who is going to be an owner of a team and a franchise. And that's not what helps win championships. I don't think there's too many times where you're like, oh, look, the, the new ownership came in and, and they they really done it. The Dodgers haven't done it yet. And the Dodgers have had superstar, all-star squads over the past six years, right? But they have a chance. And so that's what fans want is that, hey, we have a chance to do it this year. This year's our year. When it comes to the Mets, and it has been for the past few years, there's always a couple of months of hope. It's almost like Steven Matz is that perfect analogy of, of being a Met fan, right? You're like, yeah, they, on paper, they look really, really good. And then you watch them play. And one day you could watch them, like Friday, and be like, wow, this team is exciting. This team has special players. This team has everything it needs to compete. And then you go to Sunday in a doubleheader and watch the difference that made. And, and it, it's crazy to think about because that's what we've seen, you know, in a guy like Steven Matz. But on one hand, he's supposed to be one of those five aces, a bulldog mentality, a guy who, you know, left-handed stuff is one of the top in the game. And then you look on the other side and you're like, man, he can't get out. He can't do it two games in a row. This is where the Mets are. They have to figure out a way to play consistently good, fundamental baseball, and they will be good enough to win. They will be good enough to get their foot in the door. And at that point, who knows what the starting rotation looks like. But this starting rotation wasn't anything what we thought it would be when we opened up the show back in uh, in April or March or when we opened up the season. We didn't think that we would see th- this rotation scrape together the way it is. I still think Lugo is a, a huge key because I would love to see Lugo behind a DeGrom, um, more so than Lugo Porcello, DeGrom Porcello. I like DeGrom Lugo in a two-game out of three matchup. I'd love to see those two guys frontlining it, but I still have questions about the bullpen because of the over usage and you have to stretch these starters out deeper like a Porcello a guy who's done it for years and years and years a guy who is only have 85 pitches and their team is up by four runs let him go another inning let him go two innings so what give him an extra off day but I don't get the babying of starters or the analytics that say hey third fourth time through the lineup you know this guy struggles yeah but if you never let him do it those numbers never change and so you're always going to look back and say oh they're batting 400 yeah, it was four for 10 in his career. If it's four for 10 and it stays that way, then they're never going to give him a chance to do that. There's certain days like that day where he needed to go out there for another inning. Who knows? He might have had a three pitch inning. Who knows? And then you send them back out again and you're shortening the game on one side or the other. But you can't keep burning it with the bullpen and having guys throw three days in a row or three out of four or four out of five. You can see these guys going from, man, really good stuff today, nasty movement, nasty location to can't find the plate, walking the yard, hitting batters, and then one error changes everything. So it's been difficult to watch. I still look at it this way. They still have a chance 
And if so, you're saying there's a chance, or is that from dumb, dumb and, and Dumber? Yeah, that's that's definitely what I'm saying is that there's still a chance, and it's just a matter of can Todd Frazier make a difference in that clubhouse? Can he be the guy who is the bad guy and kicks people in the ass when things go awry? Um, I don't know if they have that. I don't know if a first year manager. We saw that with JD Davis, where he had the learning experience and he got you know talked to about not covering third base and being in his own world and being in his own zone. But it's difficult for a first year manager to go around that clubhouse and every single time nitpick about everything because these guys are supposed to be professionals right they're supposed to have played in every situation or done everything when you have people playing out of position when you have people who haven't played the game as a starting player for a long time uh things like this are going to happen so his job before was quality control that was his job hey pull him over to the side have a little talk explain to him why that was so that the manager wasn't the bad guy you just nowadays it's almost like constructive criticism oh that's bad blood and all of a sudden you'll see that in the media you'll see that all over the oh you know jd davis kind of talking to you know he must be mad at the uh, at the manager no you're supposed to be coached you're supposed to be handled that way you're supposed to learn from your mistakes and if i don't do that as a manager or as a coach i'm not doing my job so I, I look for even rojas to learn from his mistakes and continue to get better and there's only 25 games left i'm done with him i'm done i, I i'm in clean house steve cohen come here clean house Fire Brody, fire Rojas. Figgy, I'd have you manage the Mets right now. You know how much different these two seasons would be if you traded Edwin Diaz for a rare case of Dunkaroos? You know how hard Dunkaroos are hard to find these days? People go to 7-Eleven first thing in the morning, they clear the rack, and they're gone for months. Dunkaroos is out here selling memorabilia, but they can't find a box. You go on Amazon, it's $25. I would trade Edwin Diaz for Dunkaroos right now, and you think I'm joking. I'm not even kidding. If you can get the first 25,000 fans on opening day each get Dunkaroos hell I'm in do that giveaway every game if it means Edwin Diaz is off this team and the Mets want to treasure him I know they don't want to sell low on him (coughs) CAA client (coughs) CAA client alert so listen Edwin Diaz is the big reason the Mets missed the playoffs last year he's a big reason the bullpen has been a disgrace this year and I know it's, it's been a trickle effect and since Lugo's gone to the rotation like you said guys are getting overused and pitching consecutive days and it's killing them but you can't keep putting him in he was fine remember that little stretch he had where he wasn't closing he was in lower leverage roles why'd you change that oh good job let's let's put you back in the big boy pants no stay in the little boy pants be a seventh grader a seventh inning guy and and give me the dunkaroos just trade him i mean i'm sick of him you at this point figgy you cannot bring him back to the team next year you can't even consider it no, you have to consider it you, he's he's still one of the arms and he's under control he's an right. arm that's all he is he has an arm and it throws fast he's nothing else i i'm sick of hearing about his stuff he's blown 10 saves and has a 580 RA and save chances. How is that good? Then again, then you may have to change his role, right? So, I, and I don't mean low leverage situations. I don't mean, you know, in mop-up duty. I don't mean it, where the game doesn't matter, but you start changing his role or you really know about him is that he can't come into a situation with runners on, on base, especially bases loaded. He's had to do that two times already. That is not the guy I want in there because he's so erratic, right? So for him, that's not the, the spot you want to put him in. I get it. He's done it. He did it in Seattle I don't I don't buy the you know it, it's harder to do in New York there's no fans there there's no one do, are they making the fake crowd noise boo him when he comes I don't think they are I'll give him a new role how about you're part of the t-shirt tosser you're part of the perk patrol because you're good <laughs> at giving up home runs so why don't you shoot a t-shirt in a Staten Island that's your new role <laughs> 
So what you needed from him the other day with a 3-2 count on Aaron Hicks with a base open, he throws a slider. And not a slider that sits on the tee, a nasty slider that's a swing and miss. And if it doesn't swing and miss, he's on first base. I'm facing Talkman. If I'm facing Talkman, he is not the same kind of hitter that Aaron Hicks is. And especially in Yankee Stadium where Aaron Hicks does one thing and one thing only, and that's pull the ball. And he's sitting dead red on a 3-2 count and you give him a fastball. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That's where having confidence in your catcher to be able to block a ball in the dirt. I don't have that confidence if I'm any pitcher with, with, with Ramos back there. Ramos is not blocking balls. He's scooping at balls. He's not getting down there. And you have that confidence. If I throw this nasty wipeout slider, he's going to block it. I'm going to get out of this jam. I don't see that from him. And it's been disappointing. There's fingers to point. I get it. But it's a combined unit thing where we're not seeing the best baseball that the Mets could possibly play. That Friday was great. And you could snapshot it. You could talk about it. You could tell the grandkids all about it because I don't know when that's going to happen again. They need to just start playing better baseball and be more consistent at playing winning baseball. There's there's a couple things that trigger me. It's when Mickey Calloway would use the word battled. And it's when Luis Rojas says, we still trust him. We still love his stuff. And that's when he's going to get the ball, when there's tight situations, when there's tense situations like that. That makes me think that Brody is saying something and communicating because I don't know what they're watching versus what we're watching. We're in reality. They're in La La Land starring, you know, Ryan Gosling. And uh, who is the girl in La La Land? Emma Stone. Shout out Sarah McCrory. He's helping out who's laughing at uh, our pain over the Mets as she is a Yankee fan. Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling. That was La La Land. That's the land that Luis Rojas is living in because this job's too big for him. It's just too big. And the Mets wanted to go the puppet route. They want to go the Muppet route. They did, and it's fail, Figgy. And you know what? I mean, it's it's such a weird year because do you really fully judge a manager for this wild season, shortened season, and you're like, oh, we, we, we failed. We didn't make the 16-team playoffs. We fire him. It's hard to do that. He's probably going to get another year because he probably deserves a full normal season, no COVID, no opt-outs and all these injuries. But, I mean, he's not making it easy for them to bring him back next season. No, and that's one of the things. They, they kept it in-house so they didn't have to spend – a lot of money or go out there and, and put a three-year deal in front of somebody uh, at that, you know, they had Beltran was on the slate and they wound up having to let him go. And Rojas was in-house and was a guy who was involved in most of the meetings and everything else going on. So the continuity was going to be a, a little bit better than just a new guy coming in and wanting to change everything. Um, Bobby Valentine could speak to that when he went over to Boston that one year, you know, he got there and wanted to do things his own way and that didn't pan out very well. He only lasted through that season. So it, it's not, that simple to go out there and just grab a manager and and it wasn't as if guys were lining up by the dozens for the job. There's something as well. We talk about this with free agents. Oh, why don't the Mets get them? Because they don't want to come here. They don't want to come here. There's so much drama, so much drama when it comes to being a New York Mets player, manager, coach. They also don't want to pay guys. That's the thing. And and Cohen hopefully changes that in terms of giving guys big contract. One of those guys that we've mentioned every show is JT Real Muto. You hope Robinson Chirinos is not the Mets starting catcher in 2021. If it is, I'm going to jump into incoming traffic and I'll eat a Dunkaroo before, right before I get run over by, by the biggest Mack truck if he is their starting catcher. And it's almost like these trades, we'll wrap it on this, on these trades, Figgy. It's almost like these trades were going for the 2015 World Series. I mean, you get Chirinos, who maybe that year would have been good. Todd Frazier was a 30 to 40 homer that year, might have been good. Miguel Castro was early on in his career, might have been good. But to trade away Kevin Smith, who, by the way,
way, had a .76 ERA in his first year in Brooklyn, had a 3-1-5 ERA in single A and double A last year. Another starting pitcher in the minors that Brody has traded away. Another pitcher in general. He's traded guys with the Keon Broxton deal, with the Cano deal, with this deal. I'm probably missing about four more deals that he's done. He's just given away the whole farm system. And it, it, it concerns you about the future of this franchise because we want to say, you know, the big things are coming. Money's going to be spent with Cohen. But when you're depleting the farm system with 25 games to go and giving guys away and being a quote-unquote buyer but make three deals that make no impact and you want to bring a spark plug in Todd Frazier. Because, listen, did they really need another infielder? I mean, Davis, McNeil, Cano, Rosario, Jimenez, you have all those guys. So I don't really know even where Todd Frazier is going to play besides being the cheerleader on the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at someone who, I mean, Michael Kadire was a veteran presence in that clubhouse and he was instrumental on a, the development of uh, Michael Conforto, you know, being there and being able to have David Wright's back, uh, a guy who had been, had playoff experience, a guy who had played at a very high level. So he was a wealth of knowledge and sat back in that clubhouse and whether it was to push guys or was, you know, to, for guys to feel comfortable enough to go to him and, and, and talk with him about what, what happened on that play, what happened on that play, you know, what should be looking for, how do I prepare myself? All those little things that you normally have. I, I've said this time and time again, I don't know who that is on this team. I've seen Cano interact with these guys, and especially with Pete Alonso and his defense. Cano has been instrumental in helping Pete Alonso uh, become a much better defender. And with Rosario, he was that calming presence last year, and you started to see him flourish in the second half. This year, it's just like he's trying to make up for lost time and trying to do so much on every single swing that he's not that same player that he was. He doesn't look relaxed. He looks tense again. He looks like the game is really speeding up on him. Um, but Robinson Cano has always been that kind of calming factor uh, when it comes to the infielders. Um, Michael Conforto is a more laid back kind of guy. I don't see him being that fiery, you know, rile everybody up or he's a more of a put your hard hat on and get your job, get the job done kind of guy. Maybe you make these moves and you hope that these guys can do something of that nature um, as far as what they're going to be able to do on the field. I mean, we've seen Frazier. He, he's, he's had some moments, but I don't see him taking away playing time from anybody that we have already have on this lineup. Who's starting for the Mets this week? Nobody knows. It's going to be a lot of TBAs and TBDs coming. Oh, the pain. Come quick. Can Steve Cohen pitch? I hear he throws a nice 50 six mile an hour in EFIS um, could strike out a few guys. I've heard he's got nice stuff, better stuff than Edwin Diaz. Uh, that's for sure. I, Edwin Diaz, I hope his family doesn't listen to amazing, but true. They might be avid listeners. Who knows? Uh, the Mets play the Orioles for two games before they face the Yankees this week. They'll play the Yankees Thursday in that makeup. Two in Baltimore, you got to win. Then the Phillies over the weekend for four, and then the Orioles again. So the schedule is, you know, the Orioles aren't, they're not shooing games. The Phillies aren't shooing games. The Blue Jays, Blue Jays were buyers. They're not shooing games after that. The schedule is not easy. They, they play the Rays and Nats to finish the year. So the Mets have a tough road. 25 games, got to go 16-9 and nine the rest of the way to get to 500, which should get them in the playoffs. You know, 15 and 10 might do the trick, but you got to play much better baseball. The Mets played a lot better baseball when our next guest was the manager. That was 2000 when they made the World Series. Bobby Valentine, Bobby V, joins us next right here on Amazing But True. Joining us now is a former Mets manager. He got there 
at the end of 96, managed from 97 to 2002 and helped lead the Mets to the playoffs in 99, the World Series in 2000, and quite a few memories over the years. You've seen him on SNY as well. You can follow him on Twitter at Bobby Valentine. It is the great Bobby V. Bobby, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm always good. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for uh, reaching out. What do you got to talk about today? Oh, you know, only the Mets and, and dysfunction land uh, going on as, as they have lost four straight, Bobby. What are your thoughts on this recent stretch and this team right now on five games under five hundred? When, when you win a doubleheader from the Yankees, sometimes you think that uh, your season is over. And it seems that there is a lot of air let out, out of the balloon after they swept them. And too bad. They, they're, they're treading water right now. They, they have to get hot sooner rather than later. Yeah, you know, Luis Rojas, this is his first year. As a first-year manager, Bobby, how difficult is it to uh, command the clubhouse in a situation like this? It depends on who's in the clubhouse, obviously. Uh, some clubhouses are always right on the same page with the manager, and some cl- clubhouses are uh, less than on the same page. So um, I, I don't know that it's so hard to control this clubhouse because it seems to be, as everyone's is, a little disjointed because there hasn't been the time to come together as as a group of one so uh, i'm sure there's a lot of individuality out there and the key with the Mets is they have a lot of good talent but they just uh they just need to have the talent uh Right the top. The Mets today, they end up getting, you know, a couple of veterans, Torinos and Castro, and they end up getting Todd Frazier. We said earlier the wrong Frazier came back to town. It is not the redheaded one uh, with Todd Frazier coming back to the Mets. Do you think that makes a difference? Uh, Brody mentioned a veteran leadership and some energy, but there's 25 game, games left in the season, Bobby. Do you think a, a deal like this actually can ignite uh, the clubhouse? Well, you know, Brody and Todd have been together for a long time, I gather, so maybe Brody will have a, a more comfort uh, feeling about what's going on there, and maybe there there could be a connect that's maybe missing right now between uh, possibly between Brody and the front office, uh, I mean, in the clubhouse. I have no idea. I don't think that Todd's bat uh, is going to be the ignite, igniting force, but um, again, if you it's hard to read this stuff from afar, and sometimes I think it's it's really overblown, and sometimes um, there's something to it. Yeah, we just went through the Subway Series, at least five of the six games. Mets still have a chance to even up the series uh, later on this week. Um, from the baseball that we saw, the Subway Series, do they have a special place in your heart as a manager who managed here in New York? Interleague play started in 1997, and the first Subway Series interleague style uh, was in that year I was managing and it was it, it, it was hard to describe it was the most circus atmosphere that you've ever seen you know team the teams didn't dress at, at the opposing ballpark you know we had motorcade and police escorts uh, taking us from Shea Stadium over to Yankee Stadium they closed off all of the freeway entrances so there was there were no other cars on the road you know it it, it, it was an amazing situation George Steinbrenner was still the owner and you can imagine the excitement and extracurricular that that added to the atmosphere so um, uh, it was really special I I think after three years of, of having to play double series and that was that was the thing that was uh, probably the craw that I had I mean we, the Yankees were we're running the greatest streak of any team going, and we were the National League team that had to play two series against them, and no, and no one else did. And there's some battle scars that you get when you 
you come out of a Yankee series, and we had to wear those cards uh, all year long. Yeah, and you played them in the in the midst of their title stretch there, as they won four World Series in five years. Did you, when you were in New York, feel like the little stepbrother uh, against the Yankees? I guess up until 2000, when you faced them, uh, did you guys feel like the the little guy in town? Of course, the Yankees always ruled the the, the roost, and rightfully so. I mean, they have they have a great tradition, and that time they were. A Star-studded team. Everybody on the team. You know, a guy who has uh, seven Cy Young awards and uh, guys with MVPs, guys with batting titles. I mean, they, they had guys on the bench who had uh, more career home runs than my lineup had, I think. And, and they, they were a very, very talented organization. And we took a back seat to them. And I think, um, you know, 99, 2000, right around then, we, we were kind of getting even with them. But, um, you know, they, we never got over the hump. 2000 probably would have put us over the hump, but it, it just didn't happen. I, you know, with the trade like coming and going, I can't imagine the euphoria that went through that clubhouse when you guys get Mike Piazza. I don't know if there was any other player that comes close that you acquired in your stretch there, but I imagine Piazza is far beyond uh, anyone else that you, you got that really changed the course of a season and a franchise. Yeah. That's that all-star Hall of Fame player that um, we needed and and were looking for. You know, there was rumor we were going to get him, and then there was rumor that we weren't going to get him um, because we thought we were going to get him from the Dodgers. He got traded to the Marlins uh, before we got him, so... You know, there was a little roller coaster ride uh, before his arrival, but once he got there, sure, uh, he, he was star studded. Now, the problem we had when we had him, we when we first got him, we already had an all star catcher in Todd Hundley, and so it wasn't a an entire clubhouse that was welcoming Mike Piazza with open arms. Remember that. Yeah, as a 35 year old manager with the Texas Rangers, you finish in seventh place, and so was the learning curve very steep. Um, at the major league level for a first-year manager. Yeah, you said when I was 35 and we finished second, yeah, there's a there's a learning curve. I think I thought I knew it all when I started, and about four years later I realized everything I didn't know. But you can't teach experience. I, I was lucky enough to have a great general manager who was an ex-Met, Tom Greaves, when I was out, down there in Texas, uh, who was a teammate of mine uh, with the New York Mets. You know, the growing pains were shared because he was a second-year general manager when he hired me as a first-year manager. Do you think the the media and everything surrounding the job has heightened to levels you couldn't even ma- imagine 20 years ago, Bobby? Obviously, with Twitter and things getting out there quick and, you know, the Mickey Calloway saga with a reporter last year and, you know, all the critique that guys get on a day-to-day basis. I mean, if you were managing today, could do you think it would be just too much? I think it's a little harder for the reporters today. I don't think it's any any harder for the managers. As a matter of fact, the managers asked to do a lot less today than he was asked to do 20 years ago. And all the relationships in the media that the manager has today are a lot less personal relationships. 20 years ago, guys would really get into your shorts. Guys, guys could really get under your skin. Today, with the 24 news cycle, if it's, if it's a bad story today, it's forgotten tomorrow. If it's a good story today, it's forgotten an hour from now. In the 80s and 90s and, and double us, if, if there was one little problem you had, that thing, that thing went on for weeks and months. And on the personal level, it was much, much more difficult, I think, than it is today. 
Do you think the Mets struck out by not going the last two go-arounds with a, an experienced manager like a Joe Girardi or a Buck Showalter? Um, because, I mean, Rojas will probably be back next year. We'll see with new ownership coming. Um, but do you think the Mets missed an opportunity going out and getting a veteran manager? Well, the two you mentioned, I don't think there was a real fit. I think it would have been real tough for Joe to be a Met manager after a Yankee manager, even though I really like his style a lot. But it, from Louis Rojas, from what I've seen so far, I think he's handling the job extremely well and extremely difficult circumstance. But when you when you take a test these days and you're trying to get a negative score, the world is upside down, you know. And I don't think anything can be judged on, on what's happening this year, the good stuff or the bad stuff. Yeah, that's one of the things that we we keep speaking about is, is the learning curve, and you know, baseball is the same when you you know sixty feet six inches, ninety foot bases, and the actual in game play. It speeds up a little bit for rookie players. I'm sure for a rookie manager, it, it has to speed up at times, uh, especially trying to get a bullpen ready or a bullpen in order. Was that one of the most dis, uh, difficult decision making process? Is how to handle a bullpen when you go to a team like that? Sure. Depending on the parts, you know, sometimes it's, it's easy. Sometimes it's a push-button bullpen, you know. You could listen to the radio in some games, and, you know, the announcers know what's going to happen before it happens because it's, it's all in stone, and, and guys are, are really good at the job that they're being presented with. But when you don't have track records in it of individuals on your team and you don't have track records of how those individuals work together as the group of a of a bullpen group, it, it's very difficult because a lot of it's just hit and miss. You, you're, you have a good feeling, but you could get surprised a lot. And the thing a manager dislikes the most, I think, as a manager is being surprised. What's your thoughts on a, the ownership change that's about to happen? Any thoughts on Steve Cohen potentially owning this team? Well, if it happens and it's Steve Cohen, uh, I, I think that'd be great for Steve Cohen. And, you know, I have a personal relationship with Fred and Jeff and, I, I I really want them to be happy at the end of the day, uh, but if there if it's inevitable that a change is going to be made, and Steve Cohen's the guy that does it, I think that'd be terrific. Uh, Bob, before we let you go, um, I know you're out in in seat my old stomping grounds of the 203 in Connecticut, and you're doing a fundraiser at Sacred Heart with the Jackie Robinson Foundation. We'd love to uh, for you to talk about what you're doing in the community. Sacred Heart University and our major fundraiser this year. It's with Joe Torrey and Harold Reynolds and the cast of Thousands that we're going to do a, uh, a Zoom gala, if you will, on the 22nd of October, which is the day before Jackie signed his first contract back in uh, 1946 with the Montreal Expo. Or I don't know if they were the Expos with the Montreal Dodgers AAA team, whatever the name there is. Team was. You know, we're going to raise money for scholarships for the uh, underserved in the community to come to uh, Sacred Heart University, and it should be it's quite the gala. We're going to have uh, a lot of people zooming in, and I can't wait. I, I can't wait to make it happen. The year of the Zoom. Pants are optional always in Zooms, um, is how I look at it. Just throw on the shorts or, or your worst set of bottoms and look good up top. Bobby Valentine always looks good on top. No glasses or mustache needed as disguise either. Just the original Bobby. Bobby V, 96 to 2002. We, we miss you here in New York. Uh, we miss having a great manager lead the way to the promised land. Hopefully next year. There's always next year, as I'm already writing the Mets off for 2020, which is sad. Uh, but, Bobby, we, we enjoy talking to you. Appreciate it. Yeah, there's time for them to get hot, but the, the clock is ticking. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that closes episode 23, the Mike Baxter or Julio Franco or Bernard Gilkey or my personal favorite, the Goggles himself, Jason Phillips episode of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. Uh, at least we can close. But thank you again, Jay, for producing the show. Subscribe to Amazing But True wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars and write a nice review. We always, always, always appreciate your support. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We will be back on Thursday, hopefully after a few Met victories down in Baltimore before they face the Yankees one final time. Stay safe out there, everyone. We'll talk to you Thursday.